0: This is where, yes, the better world will come in if we start doing what's actually better for all of us instead of thinking of what's better for just me.
1: Welcome to the podcast, Being All of Us. It's great to have you here. My name is Brian David George, and my mission is to inspire you to become an agent of change in your own life through the stories of people like you from around the world who are on a journey of self discovery and inclusion. I believe that these conversations will lift you up and help you to uncover your potential and to become your higher self. So sit back, go for a walk, a run, a drive, whatever works for you, and enjoy some time to get to know more about yourself. Welcome to the Being All of Us podcast. Today, I am joined by our very special guest, Shiva Actually, <laughs> I think I got that right. Yes, I got the thumbs up. I said it right. Shiva, welcome. Thank you for being here.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: My pleasure. So, um, Shiva, here on the Being All of Us podcast, the way that I start every conversation is, tell us your story. And you can start anywhere you want, however you want. This is about you. So tell us about Shiva.
0: I'm going to see if I can do this in a slightly different way because my story is my thing. It's like it's you know it's become what I sell in a way. So I'm trying to think what new information I can add to this. I like to think of myself as having had four to five lives. I haven't. I've never considered life to be this one thing that you live. There's multiple lives that we live. The first one started in Iran. I was born there, and I was born during the Iran-Iraq War. When I was four, we left to Italy as refugees, stayed there for a year, went to Catholic school there. Very confusing being a Muslim Jewish refugee in a Catholic school in Italy, right? In the 1980s in a small town. Yes, that was not, that was not fun. Italy was amazing, but going to Catholic school under those conditions, not so fun. And you can imagine the stories I created in my head about the Catholic church from that as well. And then we moved to the United States. First to Long Island, New York, and then to Queens, New York. And I grew up in Queens and I loved it. I think this is the part I don't really talk about very much. Growing up in such a diverse part of the world. You know, it's the it's the most diverse urban area in the world, Queens, New York. Wow. Yeah.
1: Tell us some more about that, please.
0: Well, I mean, I remember so in elementary school, there was a lot of whiteness, but then when you got into junior high school and then high school, It was really, it was like Epcot Center. I remember like as a kid thinking Epcot Center was my idea of diversity in the world. But we have the most amount of, I think, languages and ethnicities in that just little corner. And every neighborhood has a different flavor, different languages, different spices, different smells. So just difference became very normal to me. And I mean, obviously... You know, I lived in three countries by the age of five, so in, it was already normalized. Right. But living it day to day was very special experience. And I think also, not I think, I know for a fact, when I moved to Massachusetts for university, that was, it was the weirdest sensation because growing up in New York, you know that everyone's different there. You don't see that much majority, you know, the systems are made for for whiteness, but you don't, you know, you don't see a sea of whiteness day to day. When I went to Massachusetts was the first time I really felt like a minority. In New York, I don't think I had a concept of if I was white or not or whatever. But when I went to Massachusetts, I learned I wasn't white. And I really felt for the first time like, holy shit, I don't belong here. It feels very uncomfortable to just sit here. And also it just so happened that the first week of my university was September 11, 2001. So that was also wow. huge. I mean, the world was shifting its perception of, of middle Easterners. And I remember, you know, two things happened for me that night when I woke up that morning and and I seeing the news, I'm a New Yorker living outside of New York. I'm also a middle Eastern. So both identities coming into play of like this, this horror, I feel of what's happening, but then this also terror of, Oh my God, I'm going to be a target now for the rest of my life in the United States. Wow. And so dealing with like two sets of grief, almost at the same time, this loss of safety and security that the United States gave me in some ways, but then also uh, another loss of uh, safety and security in a sense of, I will always be a target now if I wasn't before already. And then being outside of New York and and being away from my family and friends and, and going to school in that time. Like imagine going to university in that moment. And in university, you know, everyone's emotions are high, hormones are going rampant. So there was so much aggression that you can taste and smell and see at that time towards Middle Easterners. I took history as my my history was my major. And I remember one of the classes I did was Middle Eastern history. And we were learning about Islam and that Islam, like almost every other religion is based on peace and love, ultimately. And then someone raising their hand and saying, well, if Islam is based on peace, then why are they the ones always killing people? Like a university student to raise their hand in a class and ask that question. I remember like turning my head, looking at the person in their face to just get this image seared into my brain of this is what fear does it makes you ignorant it makes you willfully ignorant and I remember that was when I kind of I decided I need to get out of here I can't be in the United States anymore and also keep in mind like I had just the tiniest taste of what more you know people who are more visible minorities get in the United States I was just feeling it for the first time and and, and strongly and I couldn't handle it so I left the United States to finish my education in the UK. I felt at home for the first time in my life, which is the weirdest thing in the world.
1: Tell me a bit more about that, please, about feeling. What what does it mean to you when you say feeling at home?
0: You don't have to. Well, this is interesting. Yeah, because it's. It should be an internal thing, but for me, it was more of an external thing in the sense of in the UK, I felt that it was okay to be myself. My identities were. Accepted. Right. Not tolerated, but accepted. Maybe not fully embraced, maybe not included, but at least accepted. And that was a step up from what I was feeling before in the United States. So I felt and I, I, I knew when I told people where they asked where I'm from and I said, I'm Iranian. they didn't give a shit. <laughs> there was no judgment. There was just curiosity or there was like, oh, I'd love to go there. Or, oh, God, we should go to this restaurant. There's a whole other set of reactions that I was getting that I just never received in the United States when someone asked me where I'm from.
1: Mm. That's you know, oh, that question. How do mm. you answer that question? Because it, that's mm. you know, that question is the hot topic. And I think those of us who are, I'll say, quote unquote, interested in doing the work nowadays, that we talk a lot about this question. So, how do you handle the question, "Where are you from"? <laughs>
0: It depends on where I am in the moment. So this is, and I love this because I've been thinking about this a lot, to be honest. When I'm in the United States, that question, where are you from, is very triggering because it's scary. Because I've learned that I don't know the intention of the person asking that question. And unfortunately, a lot of times the intention is not a positive one. And this is coming from the person who always teaches assume positive intent. Right. I believe that to my core, but I also know that not everyone has positive intent. And I've seen it so much when that question is asked. So I remember last time I was home before COVID and with my parents, we went to this store to buy whatever. it was like a deli. And we were there for a long time talking to the guy. And then he asked us, where are you from? And I was, I noticed in my body, the fear and terror because we were in in Connecticut, which I realize is supposed to be very you know left wing in many many ways and areas, but it's still there's so much racism there and there's so much prejudice, and they're not so used to diversity. And so that question scared the shit out of me, and I saw my father's face as well. He got defensive, but also you know he stuck out his chin, put his shoulders back, and said, "We are Iranian," you know, with like it, it was like a Defiance and also pride <laughs> coming out, but I also notice that when I'm here and people ask me where I'm from, I don't have that fear. I don't have that reaction. Not, not to say that there isn't you know prejudice here. There absolutely is, but I don't fear as much the reaction that I get because I, I know it's a lot more coming from a curious place than anything else than a suspicious space. So that's that's what I mean by my reaction and how I feel with that question and respond to it depends on where I am. If I'm in the United States, I'll say I'm from New York as a way to also test them to see if they continue and say, no, but where are you really from? And if they say, where are you really from? <laughs> then I give them a lecture. <laughs> um,
1: but- it's, it's funny because that, how long have you, so, okay. So until you were four, you lived in Iran. Then you mm-hmm. lived in Italy for a year. Then you went Mm -hmm. to Queens and you lived there for about 20? No,
0: no less from five till 18.
1: Okay. Then you went to Massachusetts and you lived there for a couple years for three years. Then you went to the UK for one year, for one year. And then from the UK, where did you go?
0: I went back home to the U.S. because it was just really difficult at that time for Americans to get visas to be able to stay. So I went home, but I was determined to go back to Europe. I just knew I couldn't stay in the United States anymore. Culturally, I mean, I'm much more collectivist than individualist. I'm more people oriented, less money. That's not true. I am money oriented, but not in the same way that it is in the United States. I'm more collaborative, less competitive. So European culture in general just suited me. I realized there's many many differences within the European countries, but in general there's a set of values and ways of being that I align with more. So I went home to the United States for about 6 months and then I made my way to Spain to do that horrible au pair kind of working <laughs> with kids and teaching them English. I hate children. I do not like them. I do not <laughs> want them. And I knew nothing about teaching English, so you can imagine how wonderful that experience was. I gave up after like a month. <laughs> and I just left the program and, and kind of bounced around teaching English here for a bit. And I failed miserably at that. My first time in Spain was a complete disaster.
1: What? Why did you choose Spain?
0: It was the easiest country at that time to get any sort of a visa. Okay. There weren't as many requirements and they weren't so strict. <laughs> I, I don't know. I just thought, why not? You know, Spanish is always a valuable language to have for, for the United States. And I had a contact here at that time. So there was just, you know, there was something, it was a little bit easier to come here.
1: So you came as an au pair and slash English teacher, didn't continue with that very long because it was not your calling. And then you ended up, did you go back to the States at that point? Or did you just end up staying here?
0: I Well, so I was feeling miserably at being a teacher and summertime is coming and a good friend of mine who lives in ireland mean she's irish she she knew i was suffering here so she's like just come over here come to ireland we'll give you a job we'll give you a place to stay and then you decide what you want to do from there like all right great so i went there completely illegally by the way <laughs> so I went to ireland
1: it happens.
0: <laughs> yes, lived and worked very illegally, and I'm I'm laughing about this. I realize this is not a laughing matter. But I also personally don't believe in borders, so it's another thing. So I lived there for a couple of months, and I was supposed to come back to Spain. And I was offered this job to be director of studies, but I was I was so young in the sense of I wanted to live life more. I didn't want that responsibility. So when I came back to Spain, I thought, no, just I'm going to go back home, get my shit together, see. You see what I can do so I went home for about a year was that is that true no I went home for a little bit for about six months and then I went back to Ireland for the second time did the same job again and I was working in a fish and chip shop in a small town in the north of Ireland (laughs) I mean wow that should be its own episode by you know entirely (laughs) yeah and then Uh, after a few months so that second time in ireland i thought you know i'm done i need to go back home get a real job
1: right Mm. how old were you Uh then approximately
0: probably 24 25
1: okay yeah yeah that's when we start feeling that call to getting a real job
0: well, right? it's not a call. It's more like everyone around you is yes. telling you, yes. when are you going to get a real job? When are you gonna, Literally, in their words, when are you going to stop fucking around
1: <laughs> and, and get, get a real a job? Real job.
0: <laughs> and this was not coming from my parents, by the way. This was coming from my friends, which is even worse, I think. So I thought, all right, fine. Time to get a real job. Let's, let's go home. Let's settle down. Let's just have a normal life. Whatever normal means.
1: Whatever that means.
0: Exactly. But at that time, I was still buying into the US idea of what normal means and what you should be doing. So I went home and I got this uh, (laughs) very lucky. I I landed a couple of temp jobs really quickly. And then from there, I eventually got a job working in a law firm. I got a house in Brooklyn, a townhouse. Like I was living the typical, um, you know, dream New York life, high paying job that was ridiculously easy. Right in the center of Manhattan, great apartment in Brooklyn, living with an amazing artist with her artwork all over the place. But I was bored out of my mind. I couldn't handle being back. The reverse culture shock was so, so deep that no matter what I did, I just didn't want to be there.
1: Because you'd been out of the country for altogether maybe two or three years? About two years, yeah. Two years, okay. I know, okay. you're right,
0: maybe... Th- yeah, three years, three and a half years. Okay. And it was in, that, in three countries in that time as well. Right. And just, I, I, life was boring. Life was boring in New York, which was the weirdest sensation.
1: Right. I mean, I'm sure people who are from other places, you know, like, oh, I'd love to live. hearing someone say life is boring in New York. They might be like, what are you talking about, lady? <laughs> Well, I mean,
0: life could be boring or interesting depending on your mindset, period. And mm, in yeah. growing up, we also had the same conversation of like, what do you want to do tonight? I don't know. What do you want to do? I don't know. There's nothing to do. Like that conversation happened all the time in New York City as well. Right. Just depends on your imagination and your risk level <laughs> in terms of what's out there to do. But going back, yeah, it, life wasn't exciting anymore. One, it was too easy which is I think something interesting and we, we don't realize when we travel so much, we can get addicted to the constant change of stimuli and the, the regular challenges. It's like everything is a little adventure when you're traveling and it could be frustrating Like doing admin and bureaucracy could be frustrating, but at the same time, it does bring this level of like problem solving and strategic thinking and having to investigate that makes things a little bit more interesting, right? But when you go back to your home context or a context that's just super easy and comfortable, it could be relaxing until it gets really boring. And for me, it was boredom. So, and I got bored pretty quickly. And I remember after nine months, I'm like, I can't, I just can't do this. Like it's it's boring, and it's it's even worse culturally in the sense of we haven't learned from our lessons. We've gotten even more. Racist and prejudiced and closed off. And I just didn't want to be there.
1: At what point then did you make your next move?
0: So after nine months, I realized I can't do this. And I told my job I'm going to go off for a while and see if I can hold my job when I come back. They said yes. I planned to just travel for a year. But also, anyone who knows me knows that I suck at planning. <laughs> so. <laughs> There was no plan in the plan to travel for a year. It was just, let's go to Spain because I know Spain and I can house sit for a month. And then from there I'll bounce around to other countries. But Shiva doesn't do planning. Shiva just lets life happen to her. So I pack all my shit, get to Spain, do the house sitting for a month. The person who I'm house sitting for gets back and I'm like, oh, I don't have a next destination. <laughs> now what? So mm, yeah. And then luckily, a person who I had met who was friends with previously, you know, from the last time I was in Spain was living there as well. And they offered that I stay with them for two months. So I got two more months of rent for free. And then I think, yeah, 12 years later, I'm still here. (laughs) So, (laughs) Wow. It started off from I'll just go traveling for a year, starting by house sitting for one month in Spain and that one month in Spain translated into 12 years.
1: So, I can, there are two things that I think I want to circle back to here, which are one is identity. Because having lived in all of these different countries and having felt, I guess, at home, I, I, I guess you feel at home. Or, uh, how at home do you feel now in, in Madrid, where you live?
0: Mm, I think I feel it at home as much as I ever will. I don't think I will ever, ever feel fully at home anywhere.
1: That's, that, that could be an entire episode. So, I'm just going to kind of go <laughs> back to the. Uh, so speaking of identity, Shiva, could you tell us a little bit what it means for you to be both Muslim and Jewish? I think that's something that a lot of people might be curious about.
0: Well, it's so I was raised a little bit of both. I was raised mostly Jewish because we were in New York City. It was just easier that way. And my father's family was also in New York, whereas my mother's family was mostly back in Iran. But... So there's there's two sides to it. There's like the kind of what I call the technical side of how do you reconcile two religions? But then there was the second layer which is the more important one of me is what did that give me? So that first layer was both of my parents were not very religious at all to be honest. They're very spiritual and there was a lot of shared values and shared beliefs and also like the messed up parts of religion like the guilt and like the suffering was all there as well. So they had a lot of stuff in common, no matter what. And so it was it was focusing more on that than anything else. But it also gave me it, it like gives you spy privileges in a way. So in what way? <laughs> Well, because you're partly accepted and partly not accepted in both areas, so you're a little kind of neutral. So a lot of times you just kind of sit back, all right, this is the role that I took. In, in the different contexts that I was in, whether it was a Jewish one or a Muslim one, sitting back and just listening to the conversations, not really interacting in them, but just listening and, and trying to understand where these people are coming from and what ways they're similar and what ways they're different. And I don't think I was doing this consciously either. It was probably much more a survival mechanism than anything else, because I knew I had to make these two parts of my life work together, period. So how did I do that? And what that gave me, that that sitting back, observing, listening, trying to find the connections for the good and the bad, was what, because it wasn't just what they had in common, it was also ways that they thought they were different, which was really interesting, that they think they're different in certain ways. But when you're in both cultures, you realize, no, you're you're actually not that different. <laughs> I can't think of a specific example, but it was like, wow, you're both being judgmental in exactly the same way about each other, or also hearing, you know, they, they might have core values, but they just approach it in different ways. So that was really interesting as well. And what it gave me was these x-ray glasses into being able to see beyond the behaviors and almost read between the lines and understand what each side is trying to say but they're speaking in their own unique, like cultural language. And so they can't understand each other. But when you straddle two cultures, you can understand both. You can see what they can't see.
1: So what was it like? At, I mean, I assume that one of your parents is Jewish and the other is Muslim.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: What was it? I mean, how do they relate to each other from their different religious backgrounds?
0: Well, they're not religious at all. That's the thing. Neither of my parents are, which was very helpful. So parts, parts of their families are religious, but neither of them are. And also interesting fact, there was a stage, I think when I was about 13 years old, my parents told me that I'm not allowed to, to say I'm either Muslim or Jewish anymore. I had to do my own research and I had to find different religions and study them and experience them in whatever ways I could, and then make the decision by myself and for myself, which... I mean, just having that freedom is also what allowed me to feel comfortable enough to straddle both the religions. But I think either way you would do it because it is survival. I've completely lost track of the original (laughs) question.
1: (laughs) I was just asking, you know, how what it was like being in that home with those two um, parents. Right. With with a Jewish and a Muslim parent. And if those two philosophies, I'll call them instead of religions, uh, you know, those two different, I guess, cultures. Mm -hmm. living together at home uh what it was like so
0: what was more interesting so i mean and i love that you said cultures because religions are cultures and you can absolutely live by the cultural norms of the religion without actually having any faith at all and this is what folks don't don't realize and i think with my parents what was more interesting was one again i i don't think any part of how they were showing up was very explicitly or very largely connected to their religions, but just their religions were obviously part of how they were showing up. It was interesting to see what they judged, right? What they found morally wrong, ethically wrong. It was interesting to see the jokes that they were making, the stories that they were telling, because all of that implies their cultural programming. And, and I can't tell if it was, you know, the Jewish, the Muslim, the Iranian, or something else that was being that was coming out in those stories and and jokes and stuff, but. It was interesting to see what are the messages that they're giving me through the jokes, through the stories, through the judgments.
1: That's fascinating.
0: And I think the more identities you ex- you have and also recognize in yourself, the more you're able to do that and see that every culture has their own judgments, their own stories, their own jokes, and then what are the uh, the secret rules that they're operating from that are manifesting in these jokes and these stories.
1: There's so much going on that we don't even realize is going on. So the more that we can start paying attention to that, the more it can help us decipher a culture or a a worldview.
0: Yep. Yep. We need more information. And to to get that information, we need to observe and be curious.
1: This identity, because for me, that's something that's fairly recent development. I'll say is kind of understanding that Every experience that we have in every place that we live and every person we come into contact with in some way, shape or form, like leaves a mark on us. Uh, that sounds maybe negative, you know, that they, they contribute to our experience, our reality. And so they form part of our identity. So, you know, when I was asking you how you dealt with the question, when, you know, where are you from? For me now, when people ask me that question, I'm like, dude, I don't know how to answer you because mm-hmm. yes, I was born in the United States in Virginia. and The first time I left the country, I felt like, wow, there's something going on outside. Like, the world is not what I thought it was. It's so much bigger than my backyard. So that kind of got me into that, I want to try something else. And so I studied in in Spain, and that was like, whoa, this feels like home, you know, you were saying. And so I lived in Madrid for 13 years, and I've been in Barcelona for 10. And, you know, like, I feel a little bit from all of those places. So it's like, I'm not from the U.S., Because I have lived more conscious years of my life outside of the country than inside of that country. So I'm a little, I'm an American child and I'm a Madrillian, you know, man and also like a Barcelonian man. And all of those things can live together within me. I don't need to choose one or the other. Yes. And I I wish you guys could see Shiva's face because she's like (laughs) huge knots like, yes. So,
0: and trying so so hard to like hold back and from screaming oh my god yes all of
1: this to scream oh my god yes yeah. so tell us about that for you what's it like having all of these parts of your experience form part of your identity you know how do you express, how do you express that identity in the world
0: oh that's a delicious one well one it's a blessing and sometimes a curse to have so many identities and i completely Agree with this thing that our identities are not just our nationalities. It's every group and person and place that we've lived and every experience that we've lived. It's whatever has marked us, right? It's nudged us in one one direction or another. It's programmed us in one way or another. And the way I see it as, as I the all of the identities that I have have given me a different perspective, different tools, different sets of values, and just different mindsets. So it's, I, I, this is going to sound horrible, but (laughs) I feel bad for people who only see themselves as one identity, because it's like, you're robbing yourself of this delicious possibility to just have all of these tools at your disposal to live a bigger life. And I also think that we all have a lot more identities than we think we do. So whenever someone this happens a lot when I tell my story and they're like, "Oh wow, you're you're so interesting. My life is just so much more boring." And I'm like, "No, it's really not." Actually, it's you're not. <laughs> like, exactly. If you only knew the amount of identities that you have and personalities and the people you are, you would not you would not see it that way at all. So it's that's why I was also careful to say I feel bad for people who only think they have one identity because everyone has many identities.
1: That's a very good. Um, actually, I w- I want you to talk a little bit more about that because it's true that maybe you could talk about some of the identities that are not obvious that you have discovered in yourself that other mm. people probably that resonate with other people as well, you know, and I, maybe I could name a few like, like, you know, like being a man or being a woman is part of your identity. And there's also, you know, we don't need to limit ourselves to man or woman as yes, we are seeing exactly. in the world today. Gender is a, is a social construct. Yep. Being cisgender, being heterosexual or not being sensitive or being you know there's so many different or layers introvert
0: or extrovert absolutely yes
1: neurotypical or not neurotypical like it having different skin colors and shades and like all of these speaking different languages they all mm-hmm. play in <laughs> so tell us about oh, yes some so of those layers
0: as, yeah there's three different ones and let's let's hope my brain can hold on to them let me just call them out and then i'll go into each a little bit more so the first one is the love language that I identify with. Another one is the energetic kind of masculine and feminine ideas. So Shiva and Shakti, the divine feminine, divine masculine, this personality, like work style, personality types, and being an an expressive. So there's expressive driver, analytic, amiable, and me identifying with expressive. So the love languages one was... One, I'll clarify what it is for those who don't know it, is this idea that there's different ways that we show love and receive love, right? Or want to receive love. There's physical touch. There's words of affirmation, and that's telling someone, I love you, I appreciate you, thank you, so on. There's acts of service, so doing the dishes, doing the laundry, taking up the garbage, planning the holiday, whatever. Gifts, so that's physical gifts. And then there's quality time. So spending uninterrupted quality time with someone. And I remember when I read through this, so many of the fights and misunderstandings and frustrations that I've had with my family, and my friends, and my, my ex husband were made so clear because I was able to understand this part of me that I just didn't know existed before. All right. So that's how I'm defining also as an identity. It's a part of you. It really drives how you interact and show up in the world because it drives your, your paradigm and your, your mental model of how things are. So it has that inner part of, I have an idea of how things should be and I express it in certain ways. So that is for me, identity, but it was hidden from me. I didn't even know this freaking thing existed. And then when I realized, oh my God, I am acts of service and words of affirmation. And my ex-husband, for example, was gifts and quality time, complete opposite identities in terms of love and how we express love and want to receive love. So you could imagine how we were constantly showing each other love, but the other one was thinking that, that the other person doesn't love me because I'm not getting love the way I need it. So that blew my mind, that part of my identity and understanding it and also reminded me of the importance and the value of understanding the different parts of you. And then the second one is the Shiva and Shakti. And for those who don't know, Shiva is the divine masculine and Shakti is the divine feminine. I, is that divine or is it just... The masculine, feminine. I don't, I'm really not that learned in this topic. <sighs> it's okay. But it was this just identity of traits that we have unt- for so long identified as just female or male. And then taking and connecting that to your biology and taking that off and saying, no, your biology has nothing to do with it. It has a lot. It's just how you show up and how you see the world and how you behave. And That was interesting. It was almost like a removal of an identity so that a new identity could take its place. So the removal of one way of understanding gender to a completely different way of understanding in terms of energy. I think that's enough. I feel like I've talked too much.
1: (laughs) Fascinating. I would love for you to keep going. Uh, If you want to go to the third point you mentioned before, I mean, you can keep going if you want.
0: No, I'll try to (laughs) quickly go over that one. The work style. So what work style are you? And this is going to sound weird, but for a long time, I thought I was a lot more quiet, shy, and introverted. Not to mean that someone who's introverted is quiet or shy, but I thought I was those three. And then (laughs) I laugh now because every time I tell people this, like, what the hell are you thinking? Why would you think that you were an introvert? (laughs) And then my my level of self-awareness was very low for a very long time. And then doing this process of finding what my work style is and going, Oh, I'm an expressive. Oh, this makes a lot of sense. This is why I need to talk so much because it's how I even understand things. I need to talk it out to understand it. And then yes, I become dominating in situations and I don't give space for other people to talk. And so there's the pros and the cons. I could be super engaging and I can be super motivating, but I'm not so good at actually following through and getting shit done. And so this other identity, especially, you know, the prof- in the professional context was also a super powerful one. And just the basics of understanding how I show up and how that impacts others. And I feel so ridiculous even now going, how did I not know this before?
1: <laughs> well, self-awareness is something that you just mentioned. And I think that is maybe, I don't want to relate it to like the years that go by. Maybe there's some sort of relationship. Like as we grow older, as we have more experiences in life, we tend to be a little more self-aware just because life kind of knocks us in those directions, you know? So I
0: don't know. I mean, maybe not,
1: maybe not everyone.
0: Yeah. I think it goes both ways or many different ways. I think, yeah, for some folks you get more self-aware and for others, I think they put more boundaries and want to become less aware because it's also painful. And I think as we grow, we are, we take on bigger pains in some ways.
1: And that is definitely not related to age at all, no. at all.
0: One, one thing going back to the identities, I am aware that the, the three that I pointed out are not visible identities. And I do also want to say that it's our visible identities are incredibly important because it's, it's not just how we see us. It's also how the world around us sees us and the positive and negative impact that that can have. So just wanted to point that out as well to, I know that I only spoke about the you know three invisible identities, but the visible ones are, are just as important, if not
1: more. So let's talk about whiteness for a minute, because that's part of an identity that I consider we share. And I think mm. that you, I, I know you mentioned <laughs> this at some point uh, when we were preparing for this conversation about how, depending on the context, you are white or not white. So let's talk about that part of identity for a moment.
0: Well, what specifically? I mean, there's just so much I can go into. Uh,
1: Maybe about in which context you have... I don't want to say felt, because that seems wrong. In which context have you realized or have you understood that you are white? And in which context have you realized or understood that you were not white?
0: Great. Well, one... My awareness of this. And, only sorry, and the
1: privilege that comes along with being mm-hmm. considered white. White.
0: My awareness around this just started. I think when I was already in the United States, so I'd had no concept of this beforehand. And I think in New York, I was definitely, and I saw myself as not white. Whatever not white would be for someone who, if I mean, folks can't see me, but I am white. <laughs> And then when I went to Massachusetts, that was made even more clear. I felt even less white. So definitely even more not white. But when I went to the UK, there was a neutrality. It was weird. It wasn't even something that occurred to me. And I also have to say in the United States, I didn't feel safe because of that feeling of, of being not white or not seen as white. And I also didn't realize that I didn't feel safe, right? It's the fish who doesn't know it's in water. Right. Uh, I only realized this much later. So when I moved to the UK, I did notice I became a lot more relaxed physically, a lot less triggered emotionally. So I noticed those changes. It didn't occur to me that my, my perceptions around whiteness had changed in any way. I think the real notice was when I came to Spain, Because in Spain, there's such a long history also of Moorish blood and, you know, people do look Middle Eastern as well. They're darker skinned. I fit in. People just automatically think I'm Spanish. And I realized I was relaxed even more here. And that's when I noticed, oh, wow, this is what it feels like to be part of the majority visibly. This is what it feels like when nobody questions for a second that you belong here. And I also, I mean, there was other obvious things like I have a U.S. passport. I get into customs. I, my visa had expired. Like I, this is when I was living in Spain. That first time around, I went to Ireland and then I came back. When I came back to Spain, I came after my visa, my Spanish visa had expired. So I was like entering the country eight days after. And the guy in, in immigration sees it. And he's like, what are you doing here? Your your visa's expired. And I just threw out some bullshit of, I've got a flight back to the United States today. You can, can, whatever, you can uh, check with British Airways. He didn't say anything. He didn't question. He just gave me a passport back and let me enter. And that was the first of many times when I left and entered Spain illegally without having overstayed my visa for months, if not years. No one questioned it. No one questioned it because I have an American passport. No one questioned it because I'm white. Standing in the immigration line here, which is the worst place in the world. And, you know, in Madrid as well, like how horrible that immigration center is. I remember standing in line and looking around me and going, holy shit. Yes. I mean, by Spanish standards, I am white. I am the white person in line. Right. And they're they're coming through the line. The customs or not customs offers that whatever the hell these the right, immigration, uh... whatever civil servants. And coming straight to me, the only white person in line, asking me, where are you from? And I said, from the United States. Come on in. They let me cut the line.
1: And, yeah.
0: Yeah. And I, like afterwards, I sent a message to my lawyer being like, what the fuck is this shit? And she's like, yeah, this is Spain. Wow. I mean, Spanish folks who are listening to this, I realize that's not an easy thing to listen to. And it's a very, yeah. And but,
1: it's an important one to know, to, to listen mm-hmm. to as well. Yep. It's true that coming into Spain with an American passport without any visa has been for many years and probably still is much easier. Nobody really questions oh it.
0: Absolutely. Um,
1: especially if your skin is, you know, white. Yep. If you even, And I think it's even different for somebody whose skin is not white coming in with an American passport. You know, they mm. probably have a very different experience.
0: Yep. That's when I realized, wow, this is, this is what it is to be white. This is the privilege that comes with it. Uh, the other thing I was going to say is, my first few years in Spain, it was very typical for the police to to kind of hang out in the metro stops right at the entr- at the exit entrance. And just stop like complete racial profiling. Just stop folks who are non-Spanish looking, whatever that is, and ask them for their ideas because it's also illegal in Spain to walk around without an ID. And if you didn't have it, they could put you, they could bring you you to jail. But they use that as a way to to get illegal immigrants, but using, ah, the only tool they had was racial profiling. And I remember like terrified, like sweating in my skin every time I saw them, like, oh my God, they're going to ask me. Oh my God, they're going to ask me. And I was illegal at the time. They never once asked me. And I remember years later, just being so frustrated, almost going up to the police and screaming, check me. I'm illegal, (laughs) but I'm just white. So you're not checking me.
1: Yeah. I think it's hard in my personal case, because when I first came to Spain, I came to do an internship and there was a time when my status was, yeah, I was, I was irregular there for a while. I, I was applying and so I was probably irregular in Spain for about 2 years, maybe not full 2 years, but almost 2 years. And I did have those little nervous episodes where I'm like, "Oh god, please." Don't. And then I I would honestly think it's okay. They're never going to stop me. Like I didn't think it consciously. It was mm. just like in some way I knew they would never stop me. And even if they did, like I could make up any excuse and they wouldn't care. Mm-hmm. And like understanding that now makes me feel Kind of, I'm looking for a word. Uh, The first word, the the word that comes to my mind is dirty. And it makes Mm -hmm. me kind of feel dirty to have that privilege. Like I didn't do anything to deserve it. I was just as, my situation was just as irregular as so many other people who come here looking for a better life for whatever reason that is, you know, they are working, they are contributing, they are part of society and they're getting stopped and they're getting deported. And I'm not just because of this this like whatever it is that i was born into without even asking for it and it's it makes me feel dirty sometimes you know and it makes me feel like hey then let's do something about this you know it's not fair it's not right and we can do better
0: yep the only thing that sucks is like why do we have to live this to realize our privilege And I'm deeply, it's shame that I feel when I go, oh my God, all this time in the United States, I saw myself as a victim of the system. And I do, I mean, I I don't like the terminology victim, but yes, my identity is marginalized, but I still have a lot more privilege and I have a lot more safety than a lot of other folks. And that didn't really occur to me. and that is. I kick myself going, what the hell can we do to make people realize this
1: much earlier? So that's actually a perfect segue into (laughs) something that I wanted to talk about, which is how can we make things better? Like, what is the kind of world that we know is possible, that we know that together we can create, and what part do we play in that? So I feel like you really have tapped into something i mean i was i was looking at your ted talk earlier preparing for this conversation and and a couple things i wrote down i want i want to hear you talk about is um calling things out and calling people in to me that sounds like a way to create a world where we all belong and i want you to talk about that a little bit what do you mean when you say calling (laughs) things out and people in calling people in
0: all right, let, let's see if this is how you also interpreted it. What For me, calling things out is calling out behaviors and systems, policies, things that are not working f- towards inclusion, right? Or things that are holding us back, things that have been there for so long that we just don't question because they're just there. So the calling out is, is also a separation of from separating the person from what they're doing. So the calling out is of the behaviors, the actions, the conversations, the policies. The calling in is connecting with that person to help them better understand ways that they might be showing up that are not helpful, that are hurtful. Un- unintentionally, is usually, it's usually unintentionally, but I also know that if we attack, people just get on the defensive. So
1: it's really that. hard to call people in, call out the actions, and call the people in. How do you imagine like or maybe you could give some examples of of how you do that or have done that, or how you imagine that happening? Well,
0: with the calling things out at an organizational level, it's a little bit easier because it's you know, you can show that something's just not working in the favor of the business or not working in the favor of the values that we have if we're valuing inclusion then you know whatever x policy we have is just not fitting into that but with the people it it is a lot more challenging so how do you call out the behavior but not call out the person coaching speaks into this a lot so framing your language so it's not you know you did this or you made this happen or i'm disappointed in you or whatever it's more about speaking about the behavior and detaching it from the person which i realize i'm just repeating myself in that Nonviolent communication, which I know is a tool you also love, has been one of the more powerful tools for communication to help with that. It's like I see it as a way of communicating a difficult message in a way that you're assuming responsibility for how you've maybe added to the situation. And you're looking to understand how the other person is also interacting with the situation. And you're learning to ask questions in a way that's not triggering or blaming or attacking. So it's
1: that sounds easy,
0: which <laughs> it's not at all at all. I mean, and we talked I talked about this with, with our mutual friend Anna know that when we use nonviolent communication, it sounds formulaic. It's like when I see this happening, I feel like this, uh, you know, I feel that this need is not being met or this need is lacking and then leaning into asking for the person to meet you halfway, right? Instead of demanding for them to meet you halfway or putting any demands, it's the asking part. It sounds formulaic for sure. But I also find that it's that formulaic part of it actually helps to diffuse the tension.
1: And it also, uh, what I've learned with NVC is that you can kind of learn to speak in more common language using the same formula, which you know, people who are very standoffish, when they hear the formulas, they're like, don't talk to me like that. You know, if if we can learn to use more common language to do the exact same thing, then it can also be a way to call people in, maybe.
0: But see, this is where I find interesting that we're, we use this a lot in the sense of also when we talk about performance reviews. There's so much training around talk about the behavior, not the person, but then we're not really trained to communicate in that way. I mean, I don't, I don't know many organizations who are familiar with nonviolent communication or have that as part of their way of communicating.
1: It sounds like that in order to move into a world that's more inclusive, we can be more aware of people's actions more than people, or not, not I guess, attaching people's actions to people's value or people's worth. To appreciate the person. So, maybe in an ideal world, we would first see the human being in front of us who has their own struggles and their own traumas and their own whatever it is they're going through and say, first of all, and I love like namaste, you know, like I see the divine in you. I see you as this human being who's going through this experience just like I am. And now I'm going to talk about your actions, you know, and I, I may connect with you and appreciate you as a human and I totally value you as a human. And when I see these actions, It makes me feel like shit, (laughs) for example.
0: (laughs) And then it said it in a much nicer way, yes. Or I feel like shit. It's not it makes me, because that would be then putting the responsibility on the person who's done it in the action. Yes. I feel like shit. I am taking ownership of my own feelings. So, yes. And what do we say to get to this, this ideal world? We would have people be able to disassociate the person from the action and speak into the action and have that constructive conversation. But I would also go one level higher. That yes, those human connections and having better conversations, better quality conversations, let's be honest, and also conversations where we're less triggered definitely will help us get to a better world. But also recognizing and actually giving a shit and and researching the systems that we live in. So I think what will help us get to a better world is if we start questioning the systems that we've been living under, if we start questioning capitalism this obsessive need for productivity this world where human beings are now equated to parts of you know machine pieces in a factory because that's how the system was set up for manufacturing right and before that it was set up on the backs of other human beings that were bought and treated and 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 killed and raped i mean it was these are not good systems for us to to continue building on
1: we right? need to transcend systems are- those systems into something that takes into account that we are not expendable we are actually like this we are the ones creating it. so let's create something yes. that that's good for us
0: this is where yes, the better world will come in if we start doing what's actually better for all of us instead that's, of thinking of what's better for just me
1: Yes, I love that what's good you know and that's <laughs> that's why we're really here is to to kind of uh, figure this thing out together. It, I think figuring it out is an individual journey and we can always do that. Well, we are, we always are doing that collectively. So if we can bring consciousness to that, like, Hey, you know, your inner journey is yours. My inner journey is mine. And let's do this together because we're already doing it together unconsciously. So let's do it together. Consciously Let's help each other out because we're yes. all being affected by these systems what's bad for you is is really bad for me too whether i see it or not
0: yes but people are afraid to have those conversations because it means owning up that something's not working owning up that you are it's a vulnerable process and and it, there's a fear around opening up to others around that as well
1: i want to uh, we're we're coming close to the time so i want to make sure that i ask you this one question which is what we're talking about anyway what part do you shiva see yourself playing in this kinder world or this fairer, more just world? What is it that you bring to the world? Ah, that's what's such your a part hard question. Right?
0: Uh it's a tough question because the, the imposter syndrome is deep. My first reaction is, feel free to laugh at this. <laughs> I feel like a potato peeler.
1: <laughs> okay, could you explain?
0: The, the way I always think of things is I always question, you know, is what is the point of this? Is anyone going to get value from this professional personal development? Cause that's essentially what I do. Is it worth it? Will anyone find this interesting and will it actually change any lives? Does it have value? And that will always stop me from wanting to actually put myself out in the world and do more work. But then I always remember, okay, you know what? I understand that this personal development, you need to be a specific privileged part of your life to be able to do this journey. So it's, you know, it's not the basics. It's not what you need to survive, right? You don't need this. So it's not like food and water. It's more like a potato peeler. It's not a need to have. It's a nice to have. (laughs) It's a bonus in life. So, and this is maybe self-deprecating, but that's why I see myself as a potato peeler. I'm there to help make life easier for people so that they can do the work better. It's helping kind of put some fire under your butt to make you wanna be the, a better person, which, which I realize is a scary thing to, to even hear. Like, I have to be a better person? Am I not a good enough person right now? And, but I think we have a lot of shit we have to work through collectively and individually. And it's a phrase that you always say, which I love, which is hurt people hurt people. So in that sense, I relate to you in that heal people, heal people. Heal people, exactly. Yeah. And I'm not fully healed. No way in hell. I mean, I do this work also to heal myself, but I know that I can help those who are struggling at a different level and struggling to to see their programming and help them do their work to just be better humans.
1: And I want to take that healing message there about, you know, if the more that we heal, the more that we can help others do the same, the more that we can inspire others to do the same. So um, at the end of each episode, I like to have my guests answer a question or to come up with a challenge for people who are listening to this Uh conversation. And what you just said really resonated a lot. So if you had, it can be anything, like something very simple, something maybe that you've done that's been helpful for you. Or something that you see happening in others and you want to challenge them. And I like this idea of maybe potato peeler or a healer. Or what is it that you would challenge people to do that might peel back a little layer of that potato skin so that they can become a little more, I don't know, just in touch with that healing inner power that we all have?
0: I have a great question for them to ask themselves. And I also, I'll say the question and I will admit. It's influenced by a bigger process that comes from two Harvard researchers. So I'll talk into that in a second. I would have you ask yourself, what is that one thing that if I did differently would have the biggest impact on me becoming a better human? So pinpoint it to that one thing that you need to change to become a better human. And that could be being a more patient person. That could be, yes. (laughs) That's me. (laughs) That could be committing to understand my privilege and leaning into that. That could be becoming less triggered so often. That could be learning to listen with my defenses down so that I can actually have conversations. That could be being more curious into other people's experiences, you know, instead of only accepting my own. So, there, it could be as big or as small as you want it to be. But I think it's important to be able to pinpoint that one thing that has been kind of the common theme that's been holding you back from becoming that better person.
1: Mm. That is a fantastic question and challenge for people. And I'm already thinking about my own, <laughs> like how I can apply that to myself and my life, because becoming a better human is what we're here for. I think becoming better humans and and leaving this place better than we found it that's why we're here
0: yes and one last thing and this is maybe more a call to action than anything else yes and connecting to that idea of power as much as I completely agree and understand and accept and I work a lot from this point of view that we we are empowered to change our lives and you know the stories that we tell ourselves and how we decide to see things and so on and that idea that if we change how we see things it shows up in how we behave but I also completely, completely know and accept that our world and our systems are not necessarily okay with that, right? And we might need to consider our role in creating better systems. And for those of us who are in powers formal power, who have formal power somewhere, that could be a dean of a university, that could be a middle manager, that could be a CFO, whatever, whatever formal position of power, if you have it, what might you do to help bring that in more to change those systems? What is that one small thing that you can do? What is that one policy you can change? What is that, you know, one question that you can ask in the meeting?
1: Because the big changes come from small actions.
0: And they come from those in power accepting their power and using it for better.
1: It has been such a pleasure having you here today. I I am so grateful for you and for the work that you do. I think you have a huge impact on making things better. So thank you so much, Shiva, for being here.
0: Thank you so much. And thank you for asking great questions.
1: (laughs) Thank you so much for listening. I hope you can feel the inspiration and passion that we put into this conversation and that it empowers you to be confident, compassionate, and courageous on your journey, on our journey to becoming all of us. If you enjoyed that conversation and you'd like to hear more, please be sure to click on subscribe or follow to get your weekly dose of inspiration. And remember to stop by and rate us with a five-star rating on the App Store. Leave your comments below. Let us know what it is that you enjoy about these conversations so that we can bring more of them to you. And stop by Instagram to follow us at the Being All of Us podcast. B-A-O-U podcast. Thanks to the group Bombadil for our intro music, Avery. And to Scott Grattan for our outro music, Motown is Yotown. Come join us again next week for more. Until then, shine bright, you beautiful soul. You are the change the world needs. Go out and shine.